0: All right, let's return again to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, when you get there, let's stand and we'll read together. chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth Why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You again for the incredible privilege of gathering together, not just for any purpose, but to glorify, to bring attention to our Lord Jesus Christ, to grow and gain knowledge in our walk with Him. Father, we pray once again that You would further the work of sanctification in the lives of those who do belong to You. I pray, Father, You would use this passage to pierce, to convict, to heal, to do what is needed in each individual life here. Father, as we do so often, we ask You that if any here have not believed in Christ, that they would understand their great need for a Savior, and what a great Savior has been given. Help us, Lord, to understand these words this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do you suppose the Lord thinks about groaning? I suppose if uh, somebody came up to you and said, stop your groaning, you wouldn't necessarily take that as a compliment. That means there's some kind of a vocalization that you're making that they don't necessarily love and appreciate, and they would uh, like you to stop. The last time you read through Galatians 5, you may have noticed that in the fruit of the Spirit, the ninefold fruit that's mentioned there, uh, groaning is not one of them. So, what does the Lord think about groaning? I remember uh, J. Vernon McGee, he since passed away, but he shared the story long ago about. As he got older and up there in years, he'd come down the stairs in the morning and he had sound effects he made because of the pain of getting old. His wife said to him one time jokingly, she said, you ought not groan like that. And he said, well, dear, you know, groaning is scriptural. Of course, we smile at that story, but there is a type of groaning that is indeed scriptural. There's a type of groaning that uh, may not be desirable We're not glad about it, but it indeed is a fact of life and is expected by God. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, "...in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven." Well, the mighty King David gives us an even more poignant picture into human weakness and vulnerability when he says, I'm weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. water my couch with my tears. Even our perfect forerunner, the only truly balanced and sinless man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same chapter in John's Gospel where it says Jesus wept, we also find Him two different occasions in that passage groaning, groaning in His spirit. Now this passage that we just read, we see there's not only a kind that's inevitable for Christians, it's part of the Christian life experience, but the Spirit of God is intensely interested in these groanings and actually uses them for good. We find that God in those moments where we find ourselves groaning in spirit does not stand aloof. He doesn't stand unsympathetic, but is actually touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the last time we ended with that verse we began reading with uh, just a moment ago, verse 22, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together till now. And we spent some time uh, showing many, many proofs to that one verse that are evident all around us. There really can be no question that we live in a dying world system. The evidence is on every hand And maybe you'll recall the word groaning in that passage. Groaning speaks of a a deep, intense, inward, unexpressed agony. Or maybe if not unexpressed, difficult to express. The word travail speaks of outward anguish. So he's saying this entire ecosystem we refer to as planet Earth is slowly dying And all the created elements have been made subject to that. And you can hear the death throes that are evident all around us. Now it's true the goodness of God shines through. That's true. Everywhere you look, you can see the fingerprints of God's goodness. You can see order. You can see design. You can see power and majesty and changing seasons and hope for the future. But you can also see A minor key that's being sung by all of nature as it's dying out. Oftentimes we think of the natural revelation of God in terms of just the glory of the things He's made, but we also see it in the dying creation that's around us. But here in verse 23 we see it's not just the flora and fauna that are groaning. There's more groaning going on than that. You know, these creatures that we've talked about really uh, don't have the capacity to understand how or why. I'm told that in Montana, there's three cows for every person. Three million cattle. Now if you were to go interview those cattle in the contents of Romans chapter 8, I don't think a single one of them would hang his head and explain to you why exactly that the creation is suffering the way that it is. You see, they don't have the capacity to know what might have been they don't have the capacity to know what was. They don't have the capacity to have hope and to be redeemed from the curse of sin like you and I do. They just simply suffer under it because they've been placed in subjection under it. But he says, not only they, but ourselves also. We also have some groaning that we do, don't we? Now obviously he's talking about a believing people, but notice how He describes them. He describes believers here that we that have the first fruits of the Spirit. Well, that's an interesting way to phrase it. Uh, Some of you were here when we went through the book of Leviticus on Wednesday night last year. And uh, we've referenced it other times, but there are seven Jewish feasts originally given on the Jewish calendar. Remember it was in the book of Exodus and those events where the beginning of the year changed uh, to that month of the Passover? And so in the Jewish feasts, you had that first month, there were three feasts right in quick succession. You had Passover, then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days, and right in the middle of that was the Feast of Firstfruits, which was always on the first day of the week. Now what they would do, it it marked the beginning of the barley harvest in the land, and so before the big harvest came, they would take a sheaf of barley, and they would bring it in there to the temple or the tabernacle before that, and they would wave it before the Lord. And what that demonstrated was, it was thanksgiving, but it was also an expectation, and if they were walking in obedience, a guarantee of a future harvest that was still to come. Now that Feast of First Fruits is actually given four different applications in the New Testament. The main one you're probably already thinking of. Christ is called the first fruits of them that rose from, or them that slept. Okay, he's the first fruits of them that raised from the dead, meaning there's going to be a whole bunch more resurrections. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Another way it's used, we'll find later in Romans chapter 16, speaking of the first Christians in any particular location, he refers to them as the first fruits. Okay, the beginning of the harvest. Revelation 14, verse 4, there's the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Okay, they are called the first fruits, meaning they're the first fruits of the spiritual restoration of the Jews that's going to take place on a national scale. But there's this fourth one that's mentioned here where it's the actual, you notice those other ones, those things are the first fruits, but in this passage he's saying the Christians have the first fruits. He describes a believing person as someone who has the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, what are those? I think one reference that could be, do you realize the Spirit dwelling within you? You're a tripartite being. Body, soul, and spirit. The Spirit that you have, that you possess, that you are, is as alive as it will ever be. Your soul, your emotion, intellect, and will, the immaterial part of you, is as saved and secure and brought to life as it's ever going to be. But there's a third part of you I haven't mentioned yet. The body. Well, that's, that's another story, isn't it? The body. What we're doing now while we're waiting for the redemption of the body, we're groaning within ourselves. Isn't that an interesting statement, though? We groan within ourselves. How do you groan within yourself? I think what it's referring to, your soul and your spirit, which are fitted for heaven. The immaterial part of you which has been regenerated and brought to life before God, which has been remade in His image, which desires eternity sometimes grows extremely weary dwelling in this fallen tabernacle of flesh that we call the body and being subject to its satanic frames of mind and feet that are swift and running to mischief and hands that are so quick to shed blood and clutch idols and a tongue that lights the whole world on fire. So, it's this dichotomy between being regenerated and dwelling in a body of flesh that causes us many times to uh, groan within ourselves. And we really don't need a lot of proof of that. You've probably heard some within the ranks of so called religion. They think Christians ought to be a mixture between a Cheshire cat and a traveling vacuum salesman. It means you always got this big plastic smile on your face. There's joy in the Christian life, but groaning's also a part of it. Some of you know exactly what I mean. You've been in the grocery store, you're heavy of heart. You walk by the rack of these quasi religious books. There among the heretics, you spy a legion of plastic smiles promising your best life now, and you feel like throwing rocks at that bookstand because it feels like it's mocking you. Because you know the message they're pushing is one of no groaning, one of almost no difficulty, one of no inward turmoil that the book of Romans speaks so plainly about, let alone other places. But you know what that tribulation inwardly is? That groaning within yourself is another proof of sonship. The fact that your soul and spirit groan within this fallen corporeal body, what that proves is that you've been remade for eternity and you're looking forward to the day of redemption. Now think about it. What happens at the harvest? What happens when you see out here, here comes the combine or anything else that's going to pick up the grain or the fruit? Well, the harvest time is a signal the fruit is fully mature. It's ripe. And at that point, you separate the fruit or the grain from the stalk and the chaff, those things which are no longer usable. Same thing's going to happen to you and I. Right now, it's a type of fruit ripening on the vine for the, for the glory of the Lord. It's like a big combine coming in the future when God's going to separate the chaff of our being from what is really good and substantial. Where God's going to remake this body into a glorious body like into a Christ's own. All right, verse 24 and 25, though, why the delay in purpose? Why do we have to wait? Well, we're back at that one word that we oftentimes don't like very much. It's the word patience. I don't generally like to hear people smile and say don't pray for patience because God will give it. I know what they mean by that, but I think that's a wrong way to look at it. But scripturally, we know that patience generally comes through trial. That's how we're built up. Patience means uh, to stay under. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, we are saved by hope. Someone says, now wait a minute. I thought we were saved by faith. Is this a contradiction? Well, there's no question multitudes of passages say we're saved by faith. That is, the singular condition laid down, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I think we need to take into account uh, in the context, what exactly what what saving is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about merely justification, the washing away of sins. He's talking about uh, the total package. All that God does in relation to our saving. Justification, the taking away of guilt and condemnation, that's part of it. But I'm looking at people, if you belong to Christ, you have not partaken of the final end product of the saving, that God has said He's going to do. Well, with that in mind, He's saying we're saved by hope or we're saved in hope. In other words, a large part of what God is doing and going to do on our behalf is still yet future. Tell me, how many of you have actually felt the doorknob open on your heavenly mansion? How many of you have felt what it's like to dwell apart from sin? How many of you can tell me by experience what it's like to gaze upon the face of Jesus Christ? You cannot by experience. Those things remain in the realm of hope. Now, the word hope is another one of those words where the English language takes out a revolver and shoots us in the foot. You know how the word hope is used in our culture. We hear it all the time. When people walking out of the casino, they hope they strike it rich. Some young lady reading romance novels, she hopes she marries a prince charming. Some guy reading real estate magazines, he hopes he gets to retire in Tahiti. But the way the world uses the word hope means it's not based on substance. It's not based on a solid rock, and it can change at a whim. You know, hope and faith in the Scriptures, they're not the same, but they're very similar. I've defined in the past faith this way. Faith is essentially believing God is exactly who He says He is. That's the essence of faith. Hope is a futuristic expectation largely dealing with that which is unseen and eternal. But do you see how those have to go together? You could say hope and faith are like the twin towers of Christian expectancy. Hope and faith are like the left eye and the right eye of the spiritual man. And some of you may recall Paul's words at the end of the famous charity or love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, he says, "...now abideth faith, hope, and charity." These three. But the greatest of these is what? Charity. Now, why would he say that's the greatest? Do you know why? Charity is eternal. That's why. You see, faith and hope are like the rocket boosters on the side of the shuttle. They help it get past the ravages of this particular planet, but once it's propelled on to a new world, they fall away and they're no longer necessary. That's exactly what faith and hope do with you and I. You're not going to need faith beyond this life. You're not going to need a confident expectation of the future beyond this life. Those are simply things to get us through here and set our eyes on eternity. But you see, charity... Tell me something, the one sitting on that throne, what does it say about him? God is love. And forever we will gaze at that throne when faith and hope have fallen away and look at the scars of that love forever because the greatest of these is charity now i find it interesting in this particular verse that hope and patience the order is switched maybe you remember back in romans 5 he says we glory in tribulations and we think well well, now wait a minute, how can I glory in tribulations? And every time the Scripture uses that language, you see the same thing in James 1, rejoicing in them. It always has to do with what you know. We glory in tribulations and difficulties knowing this. Okay, What happens? Tribulation, Romans 5, worketh patience. The ability to stay under. Part of Christian experience is bearing trial that none of us are going to escape. Remember what comes out of patience? Out of patience comes experience. That was the word essentially that means proof that you and I are the real deal. I use the illustration, you go through a tunnel enough times and come out the backside. The, other, the, the at, Every time, you, you start to get a confidence that when you go in, you're coming out. That's what the word experience means. So we glory in tribulations because they give the ability to stay under. And through those trials that come, we we grow in our assurance through those experiences that we do indeed belong to God because every time we go in the tunnel, we come out. And out of that comes hope, which is a confident expectation of that which is unseen and eternal. But in this passage, uh, hope comes first. You see, in relation to trials, that's the chain of events. That's how it works. But he's saying in relation to this inward groaning that's caused by the fact that you are a redeemed person dwelling in a body of flesh, the struggles that that produces, here's the chain of events there. He says, if we hope for that we see not, verse 25, then do we with patience wait for it. So, in context of waiting for our future redemption, what is it that gives us the patience to wait? It's being convinced of that which is unseen and eternal. Sometimes I wonder if you took all the Lord's people in east and this country and pinned them down to see to what degree they really believe what's coming in the future. How they would fare on that scale. Believe me, I examine myself when I say that. How many of you were motivated this week by eternal reward? How many of you were motivated this week by crowns to earn the throne at Jesus' feet? How many of you were motivated this week by the bliss of heaven or is your thought process still going back to curses and threatenings and judgment and negativity? Hope is a hopeful word. It's a God who cannot lie laying out the future all of eternity before you and saying, that's what I have in store. And as you lay eyes on that, you know what happens? You have patience to bear the ups and downs now. That's what Paul meant. When he said these light afflictions, they can't compare to the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. They're not even in the same scale. They're not worthy to even be brought together and discussed. Now think about this. What is it that makes you impatient about things? If there's something you really want badly, but corresponding that is an entire confidence that you're going to get it, you're able to be patient. You have a strong desire for something, and you're constantly in doubt of whether it's going to be given. You are impatient. And all of us know what that's like in the temporal things of life. It's true with eternal hope. God's design is for us to patiently bear these ups and downs and the groanings and the struggles of living in this body of flesh because of what's laid out before us. And we think, you know, I, I want freedom now. If I could push a button and be free from the sinful flesh, I'd do it in a moment. But if that was the best thing for you, God would do it in a moment. Do you realize the narrow window of opportunity with eternity stretched out before you when the greatest of these being charity is left forever and faith and hope have fallen away, you have a slender opportunity in this vapor called life to exercise faith and hope that you will never, ever, ever be able to exercise for His sake, again, because they'll not be needed. you ever thought about God's goodness? He rewards our temporary, pathetic service with eternal rewards that don't fade away. We are so immersed in a world where things die and decay and get stolen or lose value. I don't think we can even comprehend that without real mental effort. There is no blessing God gives in eternity that doesn't last forever. Not one. So while we're going to groan in this flesh, yes, while we look forward to the redemption when we're separated from this fallen nature for good, there ought to be a growing expectancy and a growing determination to wage a victorious warfare and let the fruit mature on the vine while I have opportunity because that's why we're here. Now, are we just uh, left without hope? Left to pine away with no present help? Now, if you've been listening at all as we have gone through Romans or read the Bible at all, you know the answer to that question is no. Remember Romans 1-3. through 3. It was primarily God the Father that was in view. It was He whose glory was offended. It was He whose commands were transgressed. It was He whose wrath is currently being poured out, and it's He whose wrath that had to be satisfied. And it was He who authored a way of salvation that would both extend mercy to guilty sinners and yet uphold His justice perfectly so that God doesn't just wave a wand to wipe it away, but we can say it is finished because Christ has suffered on my behalf. Well, then in Romans 4 through 7, it's largely taken up with God the Son. Here He is presented as the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world that took away our sin, but has also taken away sin's dominion and broken the chains of it so that we're no longer a slave to our sinful passions. And it's by grasping hold of our crucifixion in Christ uh, almost 2,000 years ago, that we gain the victory over sin. But then, you remember in Romans 8, who's the spotlight turned to? It turns to the Holy Spirit of God and what He does. And we see there that it's by a dependence upon the third person of the Trinity to make these things real to us that we learn to uh, walk in the Spirit. As we're groaning within ourselves, what is it that the Spirit does? Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. You see, He doesn't take them away. He doesn't minimize them and say they don't exist. He doesn't castigate you for having those groanings, but He helps them. You know the word help? The picture of that Word is one who comes alongside and climbs under a yoke with you of a heavy burden. You know, let's say you're you're struggling along. You're carrying these heavy water pails or something. And here comes this big, strong guy. He's about four inches taller than you. He gets under that thing, and he stands up. And what happens? Well, that yoke's still touching you, but boy, the burden sure got lighter. Why, all of a sudden, I could walk for miles. Because... To somebody else has come alongside to help. So He helps our infirmities, but notice the chief of our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. I would bet some of you have been through trials. You're perplexed and you're grieved. And what compounds that trial is the fact that you have no idea how to pray about it. And someone comes to you and says, as you laid out before the Lord, and you might smile, and you're thinking, I don't know how. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask. So many times, you know what happens? We don't go before God at all because of that fact. Well, I'm not here to talk you out of your ignorance in prayer. The Word of God I just read says we know not how to pray as we ought. Did you catch that? That's a human infirmity. You and I have an abysmal and total ignorance in the realm of prayer. But the Lord isn't blowing us out of the water for it. He's saying, I know it. Believe me. I know it. How much eternal realities can we really see? On this present world, we dwell or we look through a glass dimly. Tell me, when was the last time you saw angelic warfare going on around you? When was the last time you communed with the saints and the heavenlies and asked their opinion on something? Do we really know what all God is willing to give us? Do we really know what it is that we should be asking for most of the time? Do we really understand the deep purposes of God's eternal kingdom and all that He's doing to bring that to fruition? And a thousand other things I could name that we just touched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to coming before the Lord. But the Lord doesn't say, don't come. He doesn't say, don't come. What does he do? He essentially says, come anyways. You ever think about the marvel of what prayer is in the light of what God has said about what the three members of the Godhead do? It's like you can picture in your mind you're walking up to this glorious temple and here's this king you can't even look at on the throne. And there's this wall of partition and it's torn down the middle, splattered with blood, And it says, whosoever will may come. And here you enter that vast throne room, terrified yet unafraid. You see your own garments of righteousness, you're clothed in, that are certainly not your own. You're in Christ, and there He is, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. And even if you're able to keep that all before your mind, you kneel down in His presence. And what often happens? You still don't know what to ask, particularly in times of groaning. Have you ever had short prayers? I don't mean the kind that comes by spiritual apathy and refusing to come in to talk to the Lord and Lord bless my day, on we go. I'm talking about the kind of prayer that comes from a heart that's determined to have an audience in His presence. And you go in there and you're so perplexed and you're so weighted down and you're so anxious or you're so angry or you're so grieved or a thousand other emotions you fight with. And all you can say is, Oh God, or help. Or sometimes it's even tears instead of words. Well, what happens when we come before the Lord and we're so grieved that our emotions won't even fit to the narrow vehicle of human language. You know, really, if you think about it, it's shallow emotions that are easily expressed. The deeper those feelings and griefs go, the less ready we are to pull the trigger and pour them all out. And when they go their deepest, sometimes we don't even know what all's going on. You see, it's in that realm that other people are prone to misunderstand you. You probably found you pour your heart out to somebody. You didn't really express what was going on in your heart. You weren't really sure how, and they misinterpreted it, and you're thinking, why did I do that? But there's always one throne you can go before. And God may very well see fit with all of us in different times in life to shut off every other source of help to remind us. So we shall know but He is God. Well, what's happening from God's side of the ledger? Here's what's happening. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I think it's an interesting thing. You read about Christ's intercession. It's later on here in Romans 8. You can read about it in the book of Hebrews. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. But Christ's intercession is to the Father on our behalf, regardless of what we're doing. The Spirit's intercession is through your prayers. And I think one thing we can take away from that, if we refuse to go, we lose out on this incredible ministry of what the Holy Ghost is willing to do in us in prayer. You see, it's like he completes the picture. Here you are in that throne room, knelt down, not knowing what to say, and here comes another one like an advocate, not in justification, but even in the prayer closet. And what he's doing is he's presenting your petitions right alongside you. He's in that yoke of confusion and perplexion right alongside you. He's touched with a feeling of grief and pain and infirmities right alongside you. And you know what he's not doing? He's not staring at you saying, hey, express yourself more clearly. God does not need language to know what's going on in your heart. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk to Him. But God knows full well the weakness of language and the weakness of the people who use the language. That's never an excuse from God's part for us not to come. It's more of an encouragement to come. So the Spirit makes intercession through us. He takes these these jumbled up, ugly, confused petitions that we don't even understand ourselves. And He takes up those groanings with us. And that we find even in prayer, we've got a friend like that that sticketh closer than a brother. I find it interesting the injunction to walk in the Spirit, to depend upon the third person of the Trinity. That doesn't end at the prayer closet. We need to develop the mindset. He goes in there right with us. And yes, you and I have need to walk in the Spirit even when talking to the living God. The fact that we're ignorant doesn't mean don't come. Keep growing. Keep going deeper. Listen, this is the beginning. You're going to learn about God for all eternity. Don't let anything keep you back, especially your own ignorance. I've often told people that are struggling with their own motivations on something, well, i got to purify my motivations first. And I like to ask them, do you think you're going to purify by being distant from God when He's the source of everything good? Where are you running to? Yeah, but I'm not sure my heart's pure. Go to God anyways. I'm not sure why I'm doing what I'm doing. Go to God anyways. I'm not sure what to ask for. Go to God anyways. Tell Him you don't know what to ask for. All I can do is shed tears. I don't know what to say. That's okay. Because you know what's happening? The Spirit of God is making intercession right alongside you. And He's taking those requests and He's laying them out to God. And I had to ask, I'll be honest, I I was reading, I was struggling with this yesterday and I said, Lord, why is that necessary? I don't know. I just know that He does it. There's a mystery here I can't explain. But all I can tell you is what God is saying He does. He does. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 27, he that searcheth the hearts, okay, that's God the Father, he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Here's what that's saying. God knows how to recognize the movings of the Holy Spirit, the mind that He produces in the life of His children. What kind of things? A desire to do His will. A desire to know His will so you can do it. A desire to be free from sin. A desire to walk uprightly. A desire to be used as an evangelist. A desire to do a thousand other things. But you and I know full well all those good things I just mentioned. Words sometimes fail us when it comes to kneeling before God and knowing even what to ask. But he says, listen, that mind to even ask things in the will of God has been placed in you by the Spirit, and God recognizes it very well. And here's what He does. He sorts out our prayers and He answers them according to the intent and many times according to what we should have prayed rather than what we say sometimes. you ever prayed something? You ask God for it fervently. He answers. You don't recognize the answer. Years later, you recognize the answer as you look back and realize... God answered it far higher than you asked. Because see, the the intent of your heart was to ask in the will of God, and the intent was to have direction and guidance and, and to see through His lenses. And He knew that, and He took what you did ask, and He said, I know the heart behind that, and I'm going to answer it in a way that's higher. Because I know the mind of the Spirit that's been produced in you. So groanings are going to come. I'm not talking about the sinful kind of murmuring and complaining. We we tend to think of the word groaning in a broader sense than the scriptural word. But groanings as a result of trying to be righteous in an unrighteous world are going to come. Times are going to come. If you don't know what I'm talking about yet when I say, have you ever gone to prayer and the grief is so heavy you didn't know what to say, if you haven't been there and you're a believer, you probably will be there at some point. I hope you're not, but you probably will be. But we can take comfort even in those times. God is not looking for a formal, written, fancy prayer that He can post on the wall of heaven and tell all the angels, well, now look at those words. Isn't that beautiful? I think I'll send that to earth and put it in the hymnal. I think some of our most effective prayers are probably the ugliest ones. Not the irreverent. I don't mean irreverent. I mean at times where there's real heart behind it. Don't let anything keep you out of His presence. You don't know what to say, that's okay. Tell Him you don't know what to say. You don't know how to express it. That's alright. Try anyhow. But remember, you've got a helper. You've got an advocate right there in prayer with you. Who's sorting these things out, who's bearing the infirmities, and who understands full well the groanings that we face in a groaning and dying world. And you know the day's coming. Faith and hope are going to disappear. They're no longer going to be part of our artillery. I personally thank God. But for now very big part and we better make him that let's pray lord this this is such a mystery we are complex creatures and yet we're just a small reflection of what you are lord you know how perplexed we get You know how beset and troubled we are with difficulties and misunderstandings, satanic temptations, battles with the flesh. Lord, so often we have such a low view of where we're at. We feel like we're not growing. We're frustrated about we don't know what to do in a situation. We don't feel spiritual. And you know how often that keeps us out of the one place we need to be. For your Spirit is making intercession, helping with our infirmities, pouring them out before you, bringing us into communion and fellowship with you on a level that no human being can possibly do for us. Father, I thank you the door is always thrown open. Help us to grow, Lord, as a people in our confidence Not just that You hear an answer, but in Your desire to hear from us. Help us to understand how precious our utterances are before You. How You delight in our coming despite all of our flaws because You've given us a standing of righteousness first. Father, thank You for dealing with us on the basis of grace. Jesus name amen